0: folks, welcome to another SACPA session. SACPA acknowledges that this event takes place on the lands of the Blackfoot people and Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. And we pay respect to their past, present and future cultural heritage, beliefs and relationship to the land. SACPA commits to assist reconciliation efforts by raising awareness of the ways, past and present injustices can be reconciled. Today, we're very happy to have with us Dr. Dina McMartin. Dr. Dina McMartin is an environmental and agricultural engineer, faculty member, and vice president of research at the University of Lethbridge. She's she's a leading researcher focused on rural, Agricultural and industrial water resources management and treatment, as well as impacts of freshwater climate extremes on communities and economies. Dina or Dana joined us at the University of Lethbridge in the summer of 2021, having previously served in academic leadership and faculty roles at both the University of Saskatchewan and the University of Regina. She's an enthusiastic advocate for research, innovation, scholarship and creative t- activities. And also deeply involved with diversity and inclusion work in academia in STEM. So science, technology, engineering and mathematics. Thank you very much for joining us today. And we very much look forward to your talk.
1: Thank you so much, Annelise. I'm very pleased to be here today talking about an important topic that is uh, top of mind i know for a lot of people across southern alberta canada and globally um, first i would like to say Oki and welcome to the university of lethbridge as well our university's blackfoot name is iniscom meaning sacred buffalo stone and we are also located in the traditional blackfoot confederacy territory through this talk and in our work we honor the blackfoot people and their traditional ways of knowing caring for the land and the Aboriginal peoples who've helped to shape and continue to strengthen our university community. Part of my conversation today will include some of the context and opportunities, competition and conflict that does involve Blackfoot and Blackfeet, communities on both sides of the border, as well as the many competitions and conflicts that we see in water. Generally, it's, it's a global challenge. We know that water is kind of, you know, the new oil in many areas of the world with significant contributions to conflict and war, but also a huge opportunity for us to collaborate and gather and share best practices. So uh, let's move into the outline slide. So my goal for this webinar is to share some of the um, foundations of what the challenges are in terms of both understanding the... um, you know, the resource that we have available to us, as well as how it can be shared as an accessible, available, important resource. We also know that its accessibility and timing is shifting as we see changes in climate, storage and distribution systems, and the competing needs within the frame of sustainability across environment, sociocultural priorities, and economy. So throughout the presentation and more specifically near the end, I'm also going to share and embed and thread through some of the world-class research that the U L is contributing to these questions, and hopefully along the way, I'll stimulate some questions and good conversation with those in attendance today. Next slide. So we know that water does not respect or follow human borders, nor should it. And it is governed in Canada both constitutionally, both by the federal and provincial governments. And so there's always this tension and pull and push around water management. In Southern Alberta, we also have the challenges of international and First Nations treaties. And so we have a multi-purpose but scarce resource that needs to be shared in the context of current conditions, needs and priorities, as well as future development and planning. So, within our communities, um, so we're on slide four, the Blackfoot Confederacy in Canada um, has not to date been involved in formal consultations relating to transboundary water in particular, despite being bounded on either side of its borders by the Waterton River and the St. Mary River. So, the 1909 Boundary Waters Treaty did not include the the Blackfoot, nor did subsequent treaties and agreements with the International Joint Commission. And one of the challenges there, of course, is that First Nations access to water, equitable access and availability is extremely important, not only for sociocultural reasons, but also for economic development and economic reconciliation activities. Next slide. In the U.S., There was an 1855 treaty with the Blackfoot, Blackfeet. Um, However, that treaty was not particularly useful and I would think most of those involved would probably say it wasn't particularly well honoured or implemented. And so in 2018, there was a concerted effort by both the the state governments and, and national government in the U.S. and the Blackfeet communities to rebuild the relationship and try to come to some sort of acceptance and understanding about how water would be, re- would be allocated, apportioned and shared. So there is a Reserved Water Rights Compact that came into effect in 2018 across the Blackfeet and Fort Belknap Indian Reservations in the USA, um, but again, still to this date, there isn't really something comparable on the Canadian side of the border. Next slide, which brings us to this whole international challenge we have dealing with water in southern alberta and again we're not unique in this the international joint commission does have major projects and issues across all provinces but right now the saint mary and milk are of particular interest um, because there are significant conflicts that have been allowed to perhaps grow and become more significant now conflict in these reservoirs and and and, uh, river systems is not new Um, in 18 Ninety-one, you'll see that Montana ranchers began to divert irrigation river water out of the Milk River. Um, At that time, it was already running dry, every six out of every ten years, creating significant challenges, and farmers were looking for some reassurance and stability. Not unexpected, nor, nor unreasonable. In 1900, Alberta began its own canal to start building irrigation near Lethbridge. 1904, we as Canadians, apparently we had a little bit of, we had some beans uh, in our britches and we built what was called the Spite Ditch, trying to get at our American neighbors for what we thought was perhaps disproportionate removal of water out of the milk system by that irrigation canal in Montana. 1905, diversion dam and canal construction were authorized and the U.S. began its construction project in 1906. Next slide. By 1909, it was realized that all of this construction and all of these strange activities required some sort of formal treaty. And so the Boundary Waters Treaty was formally signed and Article 6 speaks to how the waters of the St. and Milk, which of course go back and forth across the international border a couple of times, um, are handled, so both looking at water diversions and water storage as well as the amount of water that can be used on either side of the border. So 1916 water gets diverted through the St. Mary Canal into the North Fork of the Milk so now we don't just have separate rivers we have combined rivers which probably drives our hydrologists crazy because of course trying to monitor and assess natural flows versus diverted flows looking at interbasin transfers and how much that is each year gets to be extraordinarily difficult, particularly in an area where we're already seeing conflict. So 1917, Canada builds our own diversion headworks and a canal into Southern Alberta. Again, we we could call that another spite ditch or spite ditch 2.0. But essentially it's it's you know the the titting and tatting of, of international water management. Between 1909 and 1921 then, Canada and the U.S. do not agree on what's been happening under the 1909 treaty and nobody thinks that the treaty is actually working. And so in 1921, the International Joint Commission issues an order requiring that there be new rules and clear definitions, shared understandings of what the measurement and apportionment of water will be between the two countries. So we're now celebrating 100 years of that new treaty. Next slide. So not only do we have international challenges, we also have commitments and requirements to transfer water between provinces. And so the Prairie Provinces Water Board um, was established nearly 75 years ago to look at how water is apportioned across the three Prairie Provinces given that we do tend to share water resources overall. So there are gauging stations or measurement locations set up across all of the borders between the the three provinces that basically ensure that we are sending 50% of the natural flow of water that occurs in Alberta, whether that's coming from precipitation or runoff from the Rocky Mountains, glacial melt, and as well as that coming in through the United States across the Saskatchewan border, 50% of that has to be passed on to Saskatchewan, and then Saskatchewan has to pass along 50% of their natural flows to Manitoba. And so what we see is generally a fairly well working system, but one that still does call into question some challenges because once again, we do have ditches and diversions that tend to move water between basins and sometimes there's a bit of conflict in how those interbasin transfers are measured and whether or not they're being fully captured in that 50% being moved from one province to the other. Next slide. So if that wasn't enough, now we have to look at the climate and all of the other changes and projections and and observations that we're seeing across the southern prairies. And the good news is we have Lots of amazing researchers across southern Canada, particularly in the prairies, who do amazing research in climate and hydrology. And they're really helping us to understand where we need diversions, dams and dikes, where those diversions, dams and dikes might be undersized. And we saw that, of course, happen with with Lake Sumac in southern BC this summer and the significant floods when it turned out that dikes were too low for projected flood activities. So we don't wanna get into a similar situation as that here. So if we look at the next slide, we have a nice map of all of the watersheds in Alberta. Um, We're of course going to focus on Southern Alberta. So we'll go to the next slide that actually gets us a little bit tighter in. And this is a, um, so the slide was created in collaboration with the University of Alberta or University of Lethbridge. My goodness, apologies, the University of Lethbridge, as well as several partners. So Dr. Stephen Kinslet and others in geography and uh, environment are responsible for pulling together a lot of this information with students and other collaborators. That team also works quite heavily with a group out of um, the University of Regina, who I'm quite familiar with as well. And that group as as a Southern Prairie Collaborative, are essentially looking at the incidence of extreme drought and flood events generally predicted to increase in this area. And so we can see in the Rocky Mountains area, there's lots of good water. That blue is a nice nice uh, indication of strong spring melt, good water access. As we move to yellow, orange, and red, that's where we get into significant trouble of, with drought. So, it's entirely possible that you can have a flood and a drought take place at the same time. Um, And of course, we we want to avoid both where possible. So, really looking at water management and and implementing projected climate change um, projections into our water management plans is going to be significantly important. We know that, you know, the timing of spring runoff from uh, the Rocky Mountains will change that there will be increased water demand due to longer, warmer summers, likely seeing changes in our mean annual temperature by the 2080s or so, of between four and six degrees Celsius, which is a significant change. We all felt that extreme heat this summer and the extreme cold over the last few weeks, um, over the, the holidays. And, um, and of course we can expect to see precipitation changes either decrease by up to a maximum of 50%. So we're going to have less precipitation, but more danger and risk of flood and drought occurring across Southern Alberta. The next slide we can look at how we are defining sort of the research that needs to take place to help us get to an understanding to avoid significant conflict with our American colleagues and to ensure that we have the water resources we need in southern Alberta to support our economies, our livelihoods, living organisms, recreation, uh, nature, and all of the things we value so much as as people who are very happy to live in southern Alberta and the unique situations we have here. So at the end of 2021, the International Joint Commission actually uh, appointed a study board to a four-year study to look at the St. Mary and Milk River system incorporating potential climate change, implementing and including Blackfoot consultation, doing significant technical resource work around the ecological needs of the region, as well as what a natural flow regime really looks like. And um, so this is going to be significant work. It will take a lot of um, deep conversations, and I'm sure some very difficult conversations, about how we better share these resources across international boundaries Um, I'm very honored to be one of the three Canadian members on this study board and so I also know that I'll probably be hearing from not only those of you who are on the call today and or watch this later uh, but many of you over time because we know that water as a scarce resource and a precious resource is going to be require a lot of consultation we need to hear feedback we need to know what people are really concerned about now on the next slide, we start to look at why this is so important. So the importance to Alberta and why the St. Mary and the milk are so important to Alberta is in large part because we have specialty irrigated crops, right? We are in Canada's premier food production corridor, and the water use is extremely efficient, well-managed, very uh, responsible use and, and appropriate use, but it is a lot. And so we have to have a clear understanding to make sure we're balancing the competing needs, particularly as there's growth, not only in agri-food and processing, but also in other industries, in population growth, in uh, livestock activities, um, you know, and plus we all really do like our lakes and rivers to be full for, for recreational purposes and for aesthetic reasons, as well as other living organisms who rely on water as well. So, in in Alberta, the St. Mary and the Milk are responsible for about 1.6 million acres of irrigated area, um, which is of course quite significant. It does represent the most intensive irrigation area in Western Canada and put together the the area between Lethbridge and Medicine Hat, the most intensive irrigation area in Canada. On the next slide, so we're thinking about 1.6 million acres in Alberta, Only 141 acres of irrigation in Montana, south of the the border. So as you can imagine, our American colleagues and partners are very interested in expanding irrigation and trying to secure and stabilize their agricultural economies as well. And so this is where part of the challenge begins to form between our two countries, is that there's a a feeling that Canada is getting, taking, keeping too much of the water out of these these watersheds and making making good use of it. Um, But that more of it should be staying or being diverted back into the United States. Um, The two blue areas as well that you'll see on there are where the Blackfeet and Fort Belknap reservations are. And so, of course, those two new water rights compacts also require that Montana and the federal government in the US Adhere to the expectations and promises made to allocate and apportion water to those communities for both uh, human and economic development. Um, on the next slide, then, so how do we how do we maintain a sustainable environment, economy, and sociocultural priorities in the context of a changing climate, knowing that communities and economies are shifting and changing toward new economic opportunities and drivers? And how do we ensure that we have deliberate design as scientists, engineers, social scientists, to better understand how we're going to use this very precious and vital resource in the best ways for the most impact for the most people? So keeping our design for sustainability and living systems as a core principle in the decisions we make. Uh, Next slide, so the University of Lethbridge does some really neat research in this area and and this is where I'm going to spend the rest of of um, my talk today is looking at work that the University of Lethbridge does and then I'll give you a a little um, insight to some of the research that I'm doing with my graduate students as well. Um, But the work we're doing here focused on the southern Alberta food, food corridor really is looking at the entire value chain of water use in agriculture across the region and so we're looking at everything from the hydrology from terrestrial imaging and lidar calculations and calibrations um, looking at data sciences how do we better use large bundles of data to make informed decisions about water resources we're doing a lot of work with irrigation around specialty crops which crops grow best In our climate under irrigation and provide that value add for both processors as well as a good return on investment so that we're making best use of the limited scarce resource we have looking at crop driven design so how do we automate systems so that they're responding to the crop and the soil conditions and not simply just to a a given schedule or a timing schedule for irrigation when perhaps not all areas of a crop require the same amount of water at the same time. Working with um, groups like Farming Smarter and Water Smart and so many of the producers in this area to look at data-driven agriculture. And I know that a lot of producers actually find most many of the sensors and, and uh, products out there right now quite challenging. They're, they're not as responsive as, as the eye test or the, the uh, soil test with your fingers. And so oftentimes we're, we're struggling to find best ways forward that make good use of people's time and expertise, really managing food production and supply chain management, which we've heard so much about through the pandemic. But I think we've also really been experiencing in Southern Alberta around, you know, making sure we have the right labor force of people around to make good decisions, work in facilities, have a good... Life and livelihood in southern Alberta—that is all driven by water and by irrigated um, crops and, and other facilities. So, the, some of the work we do. Then, on the next slide, you can see that we have, um, you know, some terrestrial imaging. My, my uh, the researchers here at the University of Lethbridge will always say, "My work doesn't really translate well into photographs. How, do, how can we share my work?" So, this is this is our attempt to show you what terrestrial imaging research. And LiDAR calibration and Landsat technologies look like from a student perspective. Um, we do have some of the world's best and sometimes the world's only Landsat and LiDAR calibration facilities. Um, we have a satellite scale and ground level kind of activity taking place. Lots of aerospace research that's actually also leading into better understandings of what's happening at the ground level so that we can really look at water resources, where they are, how they're shifting, where they're moving. So those analyses with all of this help our researchers define and quantify water resources, the kind of change that's happening, the ecological function in watersheds, as well as land use activities that affect climate and water availability. And So all of that work is fundamentally important for us to better understand where the water is and what what is happening to it along a river course. On the next slide, you'll see that we also have some very interesting researchers who are putting out some fabulous podcasts. I I strongly encourage you to check out the Cows on the Planet podcast, co-hosted by one of our UofL researchers, Dr. Kim Stanford. Um, She and her team are looking at nutrition and, and how we grow the right crops and create the right water conditions for growing livestock, healthy, safe, with good welfare without overusing resources that again are precious and vital. We're working on neuroscience related to cattle production. How do we ensure that animals are healthy and improved? We're looking at agri-food business models to reduce environmental footprint. And so all of these things fit into some really interesting ways of understanding water scarcity and trying to reduce that competition and conflict for water in southern Alberta. On the next slide, we're looking at um, some really neat research as well that is is being run by Dr. Roy Goldstein um, in a prairie to pharmacy program. We have Canada's largest, perhaps the world's largest. Inventory of um, inventory of pharmaceutical medicines and extracts based on traditional knowledge. And so Dr. Roy is working very, very closely with with First Nations communities partners and students to better understand the importance of medicines and and uh, prairie plants in traditional medicine, traditional wellness in such a way that we can then also look at, how water resources are being used and most efficiently and effectively accessed by those native prairie plants finally i would like to share just a couple of uh comments about some of the research my own students are doing because you know if if i can't toot their horns then then you know they're they're doing some really neat stuff and i just I'm, i'm so happy to share with you some of the work that students are doing Um, Where we do look primarily at prairies water access and future conditions, as, as Annalise introduced at the beginning, one of my students, Nicole Barber, is working on this project, reconstructing climate using diatom records. And so basically what she does is she goes out and she takes lake sediment cores and figures out the geologic time across those cores and connects the climate conditions at that time with... Indigenous activities, trade routes, transportation, and access to food. So, based on both pre contact and since that time, looking at fur trading records, but also looking at oral histories and understandings from Prairie First Nations communities. Now, the, the data that I'm actually showing is, is her co supervisor, Dr. Maria Velez, who's a paleo environmental and paleoclimatic reconstruction geologist. Which is a lot of words to say she's extraordinarily smart and one of the very few people in the world who does this kind of work. We're also being guided uh, by Dr. Jim Daschuk who's from the Indi- Indigenous Studies program at University of Regina and you may know his name better from um, the book Clearing the Plains. So he's been really helping us with defining and determining which information to privilege in understanding the water and climate of the past and which that we need to sort of ignore. Uh, The next slide is an overview, a little bit more uh, controversial research that that I do. I have been working with oil sands tailings pond water for the last 20 years or more. And one of my PhD students right now is actually looking at wetlands um, in the Fort McMurray area that are currently either naturally contaminated or otherwise receiving bitumen laden materials and uh, what we're looking at is figuring out how both natural wetlands and opportunistic wetlands um, are responding to the presence of certain complex contaminants we've done work with the synchrotron in saskatoon looking at how different plants interact with the molecules so looking at the molecular level um, that that was a previous student who did that work Um, We've looked at the chemistry of these. We've looked at the toxicity of these compounds. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, But really what we're looking at is trying to identify um, different treatment methods to help return the water to the Athabasca River and help remediate the land to hopefully a a better state or or a um, pre-contact state. Those are big challenges, and the Athabasca River may seem like a very large water course, but let's be honest, all water is precious, and we need to make sure that water is being brought back to a usable functional state for not only human use and consumption, but for the natural environment, for other living organisms, and for the state of of our ecosystems overall. And finally, just a final project that one of my students is working on, this is the brainchild of, of one of my students, Denae Lemieux, who's in Regina. She's working with small towns and municipalities across southern Saskatchewan to help smaller communities make better decisions about their infrastructure. So many small towns and, and municipalities don't actually have large engineering teams. They may not have the expertise to understand the impact of floods and drought on various various structures and conveyance systems. And so what she has done is pulled together as much information as is publicly available on climate data and projections. And then she's developed a, ver- a framework within a system and created a smartphone app. So that app is now being used by a uh, couple of project engineers at the beta level. We'll be releasing it for further testing in a couple of small communities. And uh, and then hopefully there will be something out there. So Kaylee is her, her little little production. Which of course, refers to to climate in in Latin. Um, so on to the last slide, then I'm, I'm happy to take your questions. I think there's so much interesting stuff taking place in southern Alberta. Um, and, and there's a lot of great research about water, water competition, water conflict, water futures at the University of Lethbridge that uh, I think everyone on this call should be very proud of of our university and and the impact it's making not only in the region, but in the province, in the country and internationally. So thank you very much.
0: Absolutely. Um, And thank you very much for that wonderful presentation. Um, I'm going to jump right into the queue. We've got quite a few questions there already. So, um, Knut Peterson, many thanks, Dana, for speaking to SACPA. Question. I assume that I assume the 50% river flow that Alberta have to pass on to Saskatchewan is measured on a yearly basis. Probably not easy to achieve during a year of drought, especially during the summer months with irrigation happening. What are your thoughts on that?
1: <laughs> That's a great question, Nude. Um, you know, the um, the interesting thing is, so really it's one, one of the conflict areas that we've we've struggled with is all of those gauging stations on the border, not necessarily within the, the communities or within the river systems themselves. And so um, I know there have been controversies in the past about water that gets transferred from, I think it's it's from the Bow River system into the Old Man system or the other way around, um, and whether or not that's actually being captured in terms of, you know, that 50%. Um, and then in years like this, you're right, where there was very little flow to even me- even monitor. Um, unfortunately, regardless of how low things, how low the, the flows get, we are still required to pass along 50%. However, the great thing about being interprovincial and having a group of people who actually respect and value each other's opinions and, and um and each other as professionals is that generally the people on the Prairie Provinces Water Board also understand the importance of ecological function in, in our river systems and, and water courses. And so water will not be taken out of a system that cannot um, bear it in terms of quality of, of life that you know, fish and, and other aquatic organisms that they require to survive. And so there are minimum thresholds. Um, that do become difficult in a year of of drought and and do require a lot of conversations across all three provinces to to determine what to do next.
0: Okay, Um, Ian Hurdle, could you suggest three emerging technologies that will help our conservation?
1: Ooh, three emerging technologies. (coughs) Excuse me, that's very specific Ian, three. Um, I think one of the interesting things we've started to see in, um, California irrigation systems is the use of, um, solar panel canal covers. And I think that would be a really interesting way of conserving resources by reducing evaporation rates coming out of the large canal systems while also producing some green energy, um, for, for helping offset some of the pumping costs and the and the carbon footprint of, of irrigation pumping. So I think there's, there's an opportunity there for us to look into that. Um, I think we need to look at the types of crops we grow and make sure that we are growing crops that have the right timed use and need for water. So, not necessarily looking at lower water use crops, but different timing of water use across um, across a growing period. And we know this in our own gardens, right? You don't you don't grow a garden with an expectation that everything um, ripens at the same time and has to be picked in the same two days, or at least I hope you're, you're gardening in a different way. Um, but, you know, we, we grow different species of tomato, for instance, so that you have, you know, fresh tomatoes for four weeks instead of them all coming, coming together in three weeks to ripen, or in, in three days to ripen. So, I think looking at something similar to that, looking at at the timing of water needs across our irrigated crops is is one other potential opportunity. Um, a third technology. You know, I, I think a lot of it does come down to uh, better better crop and livestock um, health as well. So if we're going to be looking at um, you know the technologies that go into livestock production, I think there are huge opportunities for us to really look at um, optimizing the amount of water that, that livestock receive and, and tie that to animal health and welfare. Um, and, and so there, there are some good connections there. I mean, there, there are a lot, right? I mean, it depends on if we're talking about, you know, conserving water quality or conserving water quantity um, and for what reasons. And so I focus primarily on on the industrial purposes and the irrigation design, but there are all sorts of opportunities out there.
0: Our next question comes from Eloise Thierin. What would you say is the most impactful, beneficial research happening right now in terms of water maintenance in Southern Alberta?
1: Mm. Okay, water maintenance, most impactful, Highly beneficial. Um, You know, some of the work that producers are doing around reducing or or, um, neutralizing their carbon footprint, I think, is some of the most interesting and innovative work I've seen. Um, The farmers, the producers, the processors in southern Alberta are so very aware of and conscious of, and I think mostly, if not totally, I mean, you can't say 100% for anything, but, um, you know, people are very respectful of the water resources as well. And so I think wherever possible, I'm seeing a lot of really interesting water recycling, water reuse kind of activities taking place in some of the large scale water consumers. And um, to me, that is, that is hugely high impact, and it's a very high benefit um, because of the way that water then becomes part of a, an internal cycle without having to require additional inputs over time. So um, there's some really interesting and I think very important work being done by individual agricultural producers and local processors.
0: And Eloise's second question, what should the average person know about the importance of water sharing, water maintenance, and understanding climate change? Thank you.
1: Yeah, you know, that's a great question, Eloise. I think, you know, what we want people to know is where does your water come from? Right? When you turn on the tap, where does that water come from? When you look down at, you know, the, the Old Man River or you camp near one of the reservoirs, um or or you head into waterton and and enjoy a picnic by one of the lakes um we want people to know where your water comes from and that the cycle the timing is changing i think people really do need to understand that um we will have more floods we will have more droughts. we are going to have to be proactive in determining what kind of storage systems we need, what kind of flood protections we need, and what kind of investment we're willing to make as individual citizens to protect, preserve, conserve, and manage our water most effectively. So, but, but number one, I want everybody to know when they turn on their tap, where their water comes from. Uh,
0: Lori Schultz, a recent report. Indicated that tailing pond water will be released into water systems. What are your thoughts on this? And is the wetland kinetics and design for oil, stand, oil sands water studying this?
1: Mm-hmm. You know, so really interesting question. And as as you probably know, there has been a zero effluent discharge requirement. Um, I think it's at least 50 years in in the oil sands region. And so that's part of where my research has, has come in, is that, you know, companies and, and frankly, communities and, and First Nations um, partners are very interested in returning that water to its natural uh, water course and getting it back into the watershed. Um, so some of the work that, uh, that's being done right now, I, I mean, to answer the question quickly, no, we're not ready. Um, The technology, the treatment systems, the remediation technologies just aren't there yet. Um, But there has been a lot of really good movement over the past, say, three to five years, I think, in applied technologies and a lot more investment in research in this area. So the, the wetland kinetics project that we're working on is very much focused on um how can we take what we're learning about how natural wetlands in the area are managing um you know the bitumen is obviously naturally occurring right if you're if you're along some of the you know if you're on the shoreline of of the uh, Mackay river for instance um part of the shoreline is is like is like pavement it's like asphalt and so you know there there is a a natural occurrence of this material throughout the region but what we're learning from those wetlands are the kinds of designs, the kinds of plants, the depths that are most um, effective in treating and remediating the the most significant toxic toxic compounds that are there. Um, Another one of my students who I didn't mention uh, is defending his thesis tomorrow, actually. So so I'll I'll get to talk about this a lot more tomorrow and and fingers crossed, yes, but he does well. He's looking at at mixed membrane technologies, and so looking at physical um, filtering, basically, of those same kind of water sources to see what kinds of um, you know nanotechnologies or nanoparticles we can embed into a screen, essentially, to try to remove more of those compounds, and then maybe we put them through a wetland system. So I think there's there's a growing understanding and recognition that there isn't any one solution to treating the the tailings pond water, but rather that it is a multi-step, multi-phase process. Um, And particularly because there's so much really, really fine clay in there as well that, you know, so I work on the organic compounds that are quite toxic, but I can't even get to work until somebody else figures out how to get rid of the clay. And so this is where you know, large interdisciplinary teams of really sort of creative, innovative people is, are so important and so much fun
0: to work with. Our next question comes from Sherry. Uh, Nature-based solutions are available. How can we make our cities co-create to help monitor communities and other areas we can start to provide or plan for our water resources?
1: Mhm. Um I love the question about nature-based technologies because I think um you know I mean the oldest the world's oldest water filtration systems are sand filters. You know, we use sand sand is a is a good host for microorganisms for different bacteria and and algae and fungi and um you know they like to consume the things in water that we don't want to consume. Uh, the, the sand itself is a good filter, then again, sort of like a, it's like a screen or a membrane that helps to remove other compounds. And so we know that, you know, by, by mimicking natural processes, oftentimes we can come up with some of the best um, environmental solutions that have the least impact on on the environment. Um, so, really, I think when we look at a lot of different communities and, and how municipalities are looking at water, um, we're learning about everything from, you know, things like, you know, the the Mississippi River has to, has to meander because those meanders take out all of the, you know, they take out the sediment, they take out the the flow rate and the destructive quality of the water that a straight channel doesn't. Uh, Part of why we have to have so much riprap or all the, the rocks along the edges of the canals is because we have straight canal design. Now we do that because, of course, the land is extremely important, is extremely expensive and important as well. And we don't want the, the irrigation canals dipping into um, into farmland, and we don't have pivot systems that can jump over the canal. You know, we we do need relatively flat surfaces for the irrigation systems. Um, but I think there are so many opportunities where we can and do mimic nature or. Um, you know, learn from nature and natural processes in terms of particularly water quality, so water treatment. um, You know, even looking at solar systems right there, there's a lot of, and I don't mean planetary systems, (laughs) sunshine um, as as an interesting opportunity. You know, there's a lot of work taking place around ultraviolet treatment of water for removal of dangerous pathogens. and and so I think there, there are lots of opportunities for us to continue to do that kind of work. Part of the challenge is not necessarily municipalities right now, it's actually our legal system. And so the current reg- regulations and legislations, both provincially and federally, um, are there to protect us from ourselves in some ways, uh, but they also do sometimes hinder some of the innovation we'd like to see around better use of, of nature-based and um, naturally mimicking
0: systems. Uh, Henny Mandel, in getting your research results to practical use by Alberta farmers, what is your outreach slash extension mode? Also, cooperation with AAFC Research Center mm-hmm. and producer groups of irrigated crops.
1: That is a fabulous question, and I think it's one that we probably haven't done as well with um over the last little while and honestly part of why i wanted to speak to this group was outreach (laughs) and extension and to get the word out there i think you know there is so much to be proud of and excited about in terms of the kind of research that's taking place at the university of lethbridge and at lethbridge college i just don't think we're as visible as we need to be or, or could be in our own areas and so um i've actually been you know as as COVID has permitted i've been out and about as much as i can be meeting with producer groups going to people's farms and and meeting them in the field going to different storage facilities doing anything i can to learn more about what we can do to connect more meaningfully um, i think too you know there's a, there's a lot of interest in in more outreach and extension our researchers are very interested in partnering with external groups and what we're seeing is there are a couple of new funding opportunities where you you bring industry and academia together to solve a problem and there's really interesting you know so there's funding for students who then get a bit of on-the-job training or some work integrated learning opportunities um, and it takes our research into an industrial setting um, so there's funding through a group like MyTax, for instance, which may or may not be familiar to people, we can maybe send out a link later. Um, but that particular kind of, of activity allows us to partner with not only industry and business, but health regions, and not for profits. And, you know, small NGOs in community. And I think those kinds of opportunities we're now taking a lot more advantage of because we see that there's an opportunity and a need for us to be working more closely with local producers, local producer groups, and industry.
0: <coughs> so, excuse me. Our next question comes from Knut Peterson, not to politicize the issue of water quality and quantity, but with the threat of coal mining and the old man river watershed do you have concerns if any
1: <laughs> not to politicize
0: but yes.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> thanks dude
1: mm. um you know it it is really interesting because i think um in water quality yep. and quantity very much like you know what we say for for health and and everything else you know everything in moderation And I think part of what we're looking at with coal mining is determining as communities what our priorities and our thresholds are and what moderation looks like. And so, you know, I do have concerns about um, selenium in water. Um, Selenium is is a naturally occurring compound. We all we all need it for our own health. It's a micronutrient, though. So, you know, micro meaning tiny. Um, how much is okay in our water um, is is a significant challenge. Will industry be required to implement the kind of technologies that can remove selenium from our water? I don't know. That That is very much a political question and, and one that's well beyond my expertise. Um, I think the water quality issues can be managed with the right... Regulatory environment. The water quantity on the other side, I think is actually something we need to look at much more carefully. Um, Some industries are able to, like I said, you know, recycle and reuse their own water and and get away from some of that large extraction volume requirement. Um, In other cases, that's just not possible. And knowing that water availability, water timing and um, you know, the incidents of drought are likely to all go up over the next several years and decades. I would be very careful and cautious about any decisions about large scale operations of that kind.
0: Okay, our next question comes from Lori Schultz. Can you elaborate on funding for research, both public and private? and who reviews and approves the methodologies and parameters for research?
1: Uh, Very good questions. Um, So in general, right now, we have a good mix of of, um, publicly and privately funded research taking place at the university. Um, We do invest some of our own funds back into research. Um, We also do have a lot of funding that is specifically for students to, you know, basically scholarships and other opportunities. But um, but yeah, we do probably less commercial connection research than most universities do right now. Um, I think we're about thir- in the 30-ish range out of the university's top 50, or sort of Canada's top 50 research universities. We're, we're in like that 35-ish range for, for uh, industrial contracts and work we do with with, with uh, private business. So the majority of our research really is publicly funded. And so publicly funded research is always externally adjudicated by expert panels, usually at the federal level, although we do have a lot of um, really welcome and generous provincial funding as well, that again is adjudicated by expert panels, Um, usually government and academic um, experts in in an area are adjudicating that. For the for the private funding, so for things like my tax funding, for instance, which is public funding, but it's matched by industry, um, my tax itself engages external um, experts, primarily in academia, to adjudicate those processes and and the quality of the research and the methods being used. If there's a case where we're now impacting animal or human life, or working with, with human participants or animal participants, we actually do have ethics boards as well internally, who are, um, and we work very closely with the University of Alberta on those as well, to review whether or not the research as being defined is ethically sound and safe. So there, there are any number of different ways that, that research is adjudicated and evaluated. It is primarily academically adjudicated.
0: Okay. Hey, our next question comes from Ian Hurdle. Is there any need for more storage systems to smooth our uh, water cycles to match our use?
1: Um. So I haven't done a lot of study on this, and so what I my my response is going to be a bit of a gut response or or a um, an estimation. But my gut says yes that we do need more storage systems. Not only um, in terms of smoothing out the water water cycle, but giving us more space for flood management so that we do have somewhere to put um, potentially devastating uh, large volumes of excess water, um, but also to hedge against, um, against drought. Now, the interesting thing about irrigation conveyance systems is they actually do act as storage as well. So if they're designed properly, they can be used both to send water to a a place and keep water away from a place, and so um, we're looking. You know, the the hydrologists and engineers are always looking at those kinds of systems where you can get multi-purpose out of a single piece of infrastructure. Um, I do think, though, more and more regions are looking at um, basically what's called like a daisy chain design of storage reservoirs because the larger a reservoir gets, the more surface area you have, the more evaporation we're going to see as those um, atmospheric temperatures increase. And so if you can have a series of smaller lakes or smaller reservoirs, you're actually going to see lower net evaporation across those, but still have the same amount of storage and maybe less landscape impact as well. So um, yeah, good question.
0: Okay, our next question comes from Terry Shillington. What is one or two actions we should ask our provincial government to undertake to ins- to assist in this conservation of water?
1: Well, um, from a provincial government perspective, I think we need to look at a full review of our current licensing system. I would I think we we may need to, make some hard decisions about the way that we have, you know, the first in time and first in right um, access to water, whether or not current licenses still make sense, given the changes that we are already experiencing in water availability. So our, our allocation and apportionment agreements, I think need need a bit of, um, not a bit, they need a major overhaul, I think. Um, something else that government can do Honestly, I think a lot of it is around, you know, we need field staff. We need people who are, you know, like conservation officers and environment officers who are on the land, working with partners, working with producers, um, parks operators, individuals to really um, manage and uphold our regulatory environment. And so, you know, I mean, you can have as many rules as you want, but if there's nobody watching behaviors and if there are no consequences for bad behaviors, then there's no point really. And, you know, it's it, the regulations worth the paper it's written on. And so we do need to invest in people.
0: We have three more questions. Um, Eloise, again, is there worry of running out of water supply if a climate change? if the climate trends continue?
1: Uh, I don't think so. So that is the good news. You know, this, I, I think we do still see good amounts of water coming off the Rocky Mountains. Uh, spring flows are still quite good. The timing of them is changing a little bit. And again, the growth season is changing a bit. Um, but Southern Alberta water users are some of the most efficient water users in the world. Some of the tech, the technologies we have the way that they've been implemented the designs we have are exceptional and so i think you know for for all of you who have been in southern alberta for much longer than i have you know a bit of a pat on the back there for for really taking good care of, of a precious resource
0: mm-hmm. um, i'm just realizing that the next question is i should probably have asked them together but here it is anyway okay. the next question is from trevor page given our changing climate, what do you think the flow of the St. Mary's and the Milk River will look like over the next few decades?
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, the the St. Mary and the Milk are both um, they're both impacted by Rocky Mountain Spring Mountain. So that's that's a good thing. Um, I do suspect that we're going to see slightly lower flows over the next few decades. and again, that's part of where, if we go back to, I think it was Ian who asked the question about storage. Um, we want to make sure that we have have some of those water cycle smoothing opportunities to really ensure that we have water, the water we need at the right time. Um, it's kind of like cash flow in your in your bank account, right? If you had all of your bills due in January, um, you'd you'd be struggling to pay your bills for February, March, and April. It doesn't mean you don't have enough money to pay pay your way. It just means that you didn't have all the money you needed at the right time. We need to do the same thing with water. We need to balance our water budget in such a way that we have the water we need when we need it.
0: And our last question comes from Cheryl Bradley. Major irrigation expansion projects have been announced for Alberta and Saskatchewan. Are you aware of work on implications of this for flows in our already stressed rivers?
1: Yes. So um, to my knowledge, I know that there is a large project around the Chin Reservoir, um, just just on the other side of, of Lethbridge here, um, that is primarily around water conveyance. So it's, it's doing pipeline expansions, which I think is actually a very smart decision, because then we're going to reduce evaporation losses and hopefully have more effective, more efficient uh, conservation of the water that's available. Um, I know there's, there are other plans in the works as well, That honestly, I haven't looked too closely at on the Alberta side. Um, having recently come from Saskatchewan, yes, I'm, I'm very aware of, of the, uh, the mega project that is planned there, the, the multi-billion dollar project, Um, Saskatchewan does already have a few small irrigation districts and, um, they've tried really hard to diversify and build processing to not much success. And so my bigger challenge there is if there's enough water, which I think is an extremely large if, to actually fulfill the expectations of that new mega irrigation project and, and, uh, access, um, will, the business community and will producers respond to the call of using that water for high value, highly efficient water using crops. And so for me, anytime we're looking at a large engineering project, there's more to it than the water, the infrastructure. Um, It always comes down to human behavior. Will people you know, who run business, who run large farming operations, who make the decisions about what to grow and where it's going to be shipped for processing. Will the people make the decisions that need to be made to ensure we're making best use of that increasingly scarce resource? Um, We know that, you know, the 50% that is going to be crossing the border is going to be a smaller number. There is less water to share So, um, and the challenge, of course, with that Saskatchewan system is, right now, it all goes into Lake Diefenbaker. Lake Diefenbaker in in the South Saskatchewan River feed Saskatoon and Prince Albert, so fairly major cities. And it's diverted through a canal to Moose Jaw and Regina for their drinking water as well and all of their industrial needs. And so, really, that single water source right now is pretty much feeding the entire province of Saskatchewan. So you're asking a good question, is it enough water? I I, I think that's an extraordinarily good question that people smarter than I will have to answer.
0: Wow, wow, wow. Thank you very much for this presentation. That's all I can say. Wow, it was powerful. It was very good. there's, there's many thank yous in the queue, I'll read them out shortly, but um, I want to ask you for a take home message, but I think your last question kind of really wraps up a take home message, but I'm going to ask you anyway, if you have a take home message for our viewers today.
1: Um, yeah, I really think, it, again, it comes down to, you know, water is a precious resource, we all need water to survive and, and water makes us smile, it's good for mental health, it's good for physical health and uh, and spiritual health. So take care of your water, take care of yourselves.
0: Thank you so much on behalf of SACPA. Um, let me just read out some of what's going on in the queue here in terms of thank sure. yous. Uh, Victoria, no, no question, just want to say thank you for this very informative presentation and the question and answer period. Ian Hurdle, many thanks for lucid information. And I love the iron ring. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Uh, Laurie Schultz, thank you, Dana. Um, Bevan Henny Mandel, thank you so much for your presentation. Knut, as a former irrigation farmer, I can say that there are many ways farmers can be more efficient. and then Sherry, thanks again for your efforts. And on behalf again of SACPA, thank you so much for your time for this very informative presentation.
1: Great, thank you very much. I really appreciated being here and uh, hope to be back maybe uh, maybe when we're in person again.
0: Yeah, that would be lovely. Um, and for the folks online, please join us next week, Thursday, for uh, with Nara Fidozzi, Uh on the topic of domestic abuse, a shift in perspective. So I hope you'll join us for that. And with that, we end the presentation.